0: been stressing over and over again, the book of Galatians, if I had to summarize it in one phrase, and one sentence, it's justification by faith alone. This was the important principle of the Protestant Reformation that we've been diving into. And when we talk about justification, I, I sort of have an analogy that I think will be helpful in understanding exactly what we're doing. If you were to take the concept salvation... Right, that's a, a popular word in Christian lingo. Right? We talk about that a lot. We think about that a lot. If anything, that's kind of the, the ultimate goal of the Christian life for many people, this concept of salvation. But what is salvation? What, what do we mean by that? What is that? Well, I want you to imagine you know, if salvation could somehow be taken and placed under a spiritual microscope. And you were to look through that microscope and you were to look into salvation, you would see different parts And this is what theologians of the past have referred to by the Latin phrase, the ordo salutis, the the order of salvation. We see that the word salvation is used in Scripture oftentimes in different ways, sometimes in very broad ways, sometimes in very narrow ways. And so we have in in systematic theology, as as we put pieces together, we have what's called the ordo of salutis, the order of salvation, all of the different parts of salvation. And within different Christian uh, denominations, you will find slightly different ordo salutis but for the most part they're all pretty standard and consistent with one another so if you were to take that microscope and look at salvation you would it would expand and you'd see and you'd see the order of salutis. one of the parts of salvation is this issue of justification And I would argue it's one of the key components and it's one of the most important parts. As a matter of fact, in in evangelical lingo, when we go around and ask people, are you saved, right? Or we say things like, oh, is, 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 is your mom saved? Is your neighbor saved? Really what we're saying is, are they justified? We talk about justification a lot more than we actually think we do. Justification is an important part of salvation. And so here's what we're going to do today. We're going to do something I've never done before. I feel like I've been saying that a lot recently, by the way, so I've just been throwing a lot at you guys, apparently. Uh, we're going to preach one single verse of the Bible today, and here's what we're going to do. We've, we've taken our microscope, and we've zoomed in in salvation, and we've honed in on justification, and what we're going to do is we're going to switch lenses to an even more powerful lens, and now we're going to focus in to justification. So justification is an important part of salvation, but I want to know what's the important part of Justification. We're going a third level deep, if that makes sense. We've broken open salvation and we've seen justification as we've dissected it, if you will. And now we're going to dissect justification and see what's in it. What is justification? In order to do that, we are going to continue in the book of Galatians. We're not taking a break from our Galatians series, but we are going to preach only one verse. And let me just briefly share with you why normally I don't do this. Preaching a single verse is a very dangerous thing to do. It's the easiest way to take something out of context and make it say whatever you want. It's very easy to make single verses by themselves say what you want. But what I'm trusting is this verse we preached last week and we put it into its context. And we're going to continue to put it into its context next week. So if you think that I'm being unfair with the verse, you'll have last week and next week to to judge on that. But normally speaking, this is not preaching best practice, if you will. But this concept that we found, that we've stumbled upon in Galatians, is very important that I think it deserves time to break it down. So if you would turn, we're going to kind of read from a lot of different texts today, but let's go ahead and read it in Galatians, even though it's a short portion. If you would turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Last week we read verses 1 through 6, and we preached through verses 1 through 6. Let's look at verse 5 and how it connects with verse 6, and then we're going to focus just on verse 6. So this is Galatians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. If you would follow along, for these are the very words of God. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham, quote, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So verse 6 is what we're going to look at today. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is what has historically been referred to. This is the doctrine of imputation. That's what we're studying today. That's the focus of today's sermon, the doctrine of imputed righteousness. It's kind of a weird word, that's a foreign word. We don't really use that word in modern day vernacular, which is why many of the English Bibles don't use that word. But historically, that's what it's been known. So if you were to leave today and someone were to say, Hey, well, what'd you learn at church? What'd you study today? We studied the doctrine of imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness. But before we really break it down, if you'll notice that your Bible probably puts quotes around verse 6, at least after he speaks of Abraham, just as Abraham, quote, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul is in the process of arguing with the Galatians that we are not made right with God by our works, but by our faith. And he appeals to Abraham to prove his point. And he essentially says, Abraham was saved the way I'm telling you you're saved. And so to make his point, he quotes from the Old Testament. He says, look, I've got a biblical proof of my doctrine. So I want us to read what he's quoting from. So if you'll turn to the first book of your Bible, Genesis, and turn to chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15 is often known as the great the passage where God establishes the Abrahamic covenant. He establishes a covenant, a promise, a promise contract, excuse me, with Abraham. And this is so early in Abraham's walk with the Lord that, if you remember, his name isn't even Abraham yet. God eventually changes his name. So this is very early on in Abraham's relationship with God, and that's very important. And look, we'll begin right at the beginning of the chapter. This is what Paul is quoting from. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram, sa- Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will not be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven, number the stars if you're even able to count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And then this is what Paul quotes from, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So this is the beginning of the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham has no children, and him and his wife are both advanced in age. So at this point, they're not going to have children. That's gone. That, that option's off the table scientifically. But God says, I am going to work miraculously among you, and I am not only going to give you a son, I am going to give you an entire lineage, which is eventually going to lead to the messianic promises and to Christ, but that comes in the next two weeks. So God makes Abraham a promise. He gives Abraham a revelation, tells him uh, who he is, what he's going to do, and Abraham does a very, very simple thing. He believes it. He believes it. That's all he does. He believes it. So what is the consequence of Abraham? He hears from God, he sees the promises of God, and by faith he accepts that. What is the consequence of that? Well, the text says, and Paul quotes to make his argument, and he counted it to him as righteousness. He counted Abraham's faith as righteousness. So in other words, here's what happened in Genesis 15. As as they would say in the south, Abraham just got done, got saved. Abraham was made right with the Lord. Abraham, at this moment in time, stood righteous before the tribunal of God. Abraham was a righteous man at this point. God accepted him. What was the basis upon which God accepted Abraham? What is the basis that God made him righteous? Was it because he lived a righteous life? Because he just was living such a righteous life, God says, well, clearly you're the most righteous person I've ever met. Look at how well you obey the law. Yeah, I'll I'll call you righteous. You are righteous. No, the text doesn't say that. Is it because he got circumcised? No, that doesn't happen for many chapters after this. Circumcision is not a thing yet. It wasn't because of circumcision. It wasn't because of personal obedience. It wasn't because he jumped through ceremonial hoops. It wasn't because he cut his blood and made a blood sacrifice. No, he simply believed in God. And God said, There's your righteousness. Abraham became righteous by faith. That is the doctrine of justification. This is Paul's argument. Paul's argument is that if you want to be right with God, here's what you got to do. I've got a a list of hoops and works and laws. I've got this big, long list. You ready? Believe him. You want to get to heaven? Believe in God. Paul is uniting us to the salvation of Abraham, but I want us to really focus on, well, okay, but, okay, I, I get the general concept, but I mean, what's going on here is it says in, in, in Galatians 3.6 that he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. What does that mean? Well, this is the doctrine of imputation. And so I want us to break these three things down. And then we're going to see Paul explain it in greater detail in another chapter. But let's just explain what's happening in Genesis 15.6 and Galatians 3.6. What, what specifically is happening? Well, let's break down the three aspects of this. First, there's belief. There's faith. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on that. Well, believe it or not, you could actually spend many hours discussing faith biblically. But we're going to keep it simple tonight. What did Abraham, what was his faith or what was his belief? Well, God gave Abraham revelation of what God was going to do. And Abraham gladly accepted and embraced it. Abraham demonstrated a confidence, a trust, and an acceptance both of God and of his promises. Abraham received God's revelation and gladly embraced it. This was a wholehearted faith. This was a faith that Abraham accepted and rejoiced and then acted accordingly. Right. He, 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 his life was actually formed after this on the basis of this belief. In James chapter 2, we won't turn there, makes a big deal of this. James says, how do you know that Abraham truly believed God? Well, because eventually God was going to give Abraham the son that he promised. And then what does God tell Abraham to do with him? Kill him. Now, he doesn't. He stops him. He doesn't actually let him kill him. But Abraham, if you read that text, Abraham, he, he, he doesn't understand, he's hard to make sense of it, but he obeys, right? He had, he had a trust, he truly believed in the promises of God, and the book of Hebrews actually tells us what was going on in Abraham's head. Abraham was convinced, God will resurrect my son. Why did he think that? Because he believed the promise of God. God promised me many descendants, and I believe that, so I don't know how he's going to make it work now, but I believe he's going to make it work. Abraham accepted, he understood, received it, accepted it, and acted on it. That's biblical faith. Well, in other words, here's what I'm trying to get at, just to stop beating around the bush. Biblical faith is not merely checking the Christian box on a government census. That's not faith, right? If you just, someone asks you a Christian, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. I mean, I, I guess I am. My parents were. I grew up in the church. That's not faith, Faith is, is encountering the God of Israel, encountering the God of Scriptures, specifically in the promise of your dispensation. Now, Abraham's was different. His promise was different. The revelation that we accept in the New Testament is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, which is Christ and the gospel. So the content of what we believe is different from Abraham's, but the process is not. Does that make sense? God has revealed to us Christ Jesus, and he has told us, I have given you my son, he has died to pay for your sins, he resurrected, conquering death, and if you believe in him, you shall be forgiven of your sins. So what do you have to do to have that applied to you? Not circumcision, not works of the law, believe it. And truly believe it. So Abraham had faith. It doesn't mean he didn't have works, but he was not made right with God on the basis of those works. He was made right with God when he believed God. So faith is an important aspect of imputation. But, but the text says that it counted, he, and God counted it, counted faith to him as righteousness. So I want us to understand this word counted. What does this mean? I don't know what translations you're using today, but translations are very, they they can be all over the place in terms of what word is used. Sometimes it'll say counted, sometimes it'll say credited, sometimes it will say imputed, sometimes it will say reckoned. We have all of these different English words that we are using to try to communicate this same concept. So what is this concept of something being counted or something being credited or something being imputed? Well, this is a legal term. This is what we call a forensic or a judicial term. In other words, this is a legal transaction. This is where a status is being applied to you. Something is being applied to you. This is the judge making a judgment and saying, this is where you stand. It is a legal status to reckon, to consider you something, and here's the key, even if you're not that. A judge can declare you innocent, and even if you're technically guilty, you're innocent. A judge can declare you guilty, and even if you're technically innocent, you go into jail. This is a status. In other words, we'll talk more about this with righteousness, but this is what we call an objective status, not a subjective status. This is is something is given to the person. And you might still be confused, but that's okay. We're gonna to continue to break this down and we're gonna do that, but I want you to see how the word is used in the Old Testament regularly, and I think it will really help make this concept clear. So stay here in Genesis in Genesis, but turn to chapter thirty one. Turn over just a few chapters to Genesis thirty one. This verse has nothing to do with Abraham and Paul and justification or imputation, but it uses this word in a way that will help us understand. Look at verses in Genesis 31. Look at verses 14 and 15. Rachel and Leah are speaking to God here in verse 14. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and he has indeed devoured our money. So here's what's happening here. Rachel and Leah are talking to God about their dad their dad has sold them and gotten rid of their inheritance he doesn 't talk to them he doesn 't like them he doesn 't he doesn't think of them and so how do they express that in verse fifteen? Are we not this is and then the same word is used here that was used in Genesis and the Greek version which is used in Galatians, the same word. Credited, reckoned, imputed, considered. All of those words could be used here. Are we not considered as what? Foreigners. Let me ask you this. Are these two daughters truly foreigners to their own dad? No, they're not foreigners. He's their parent, for goodness sake. He raised them. They lived in the same house with him for many years. They are not strangers. They are not foreigners. But what are they saying? He treats us as if we are. He credited the status of foreigner to us. In other words, we have a little bit harsher of an expression in English when we say stuff like, yeah, he's dead to me. Yeah, she's dead to me. Do we think that person is actually dead? Do we think that person has actually ceased and gone on to the judgment seat? No. We know that person is alive and well, but we consider that person dead. We treat them and act as if they are dead. That is what happened. You might be getting the point, but I, I want us to look at one more. Turn, uh, Keep going and go to the book of Leviticus, chapter 25. Leviticus chapter 25. This is, the law was given, and so these are what we call case laws. This was the law of Moses establishing uh, how to uh, apply different laws to different scenarios. In this right now, we're talking about property law. We're talking about laws that apply to certain properties. It's kind of like, you know, in America we have, you have commercial lots and then you have residential lots and there's different standards and codings and law systems that go with the commercial lots and the residential lots. That's kind of what's going on here. Different places have different laws. And so look at what is said in verse 31. Or yes, verse 31 of Leviticus 25. But the houses of the villages that have no wall around them shall be classified with the fields of the land. Uh, The the ESV puts that word classified, but again, your Bible might say something different. It might be, say, reckoned, considered, imputed. In other words, what's going on here, it's saying that if there's a land that has houses on it, but there's no wall around it, you're just going to treat it as if it's an empty field. Under the law, it's an empty field. Is it an empty field? No, there's houses on it. But according to the law, we're just going to treat that like it's an empty field. So you see how this word is being used in Genesis 15. There's no change to the object other than a title change. It's a classification change. So, as we go back, here's what happened to Abraham. God didn't, you know, a a giant syringe didn't come down from the sky and stick Abraham and fill him with a bunch of holiness juice and now he's this really holy guy. It changed him. No, nothing changed in Abraham other than how he stood in accordance to the law of God. He went from a sinner to a righteous man. God counted, considered him righteous. Righteous. Just as Leah and Rachel, they were strangers to their dad. They weren't technically strangers, but he considered them strangers, and therefore he treated them as strangers. And in the same way, even though we are technically not righteous people, we have sinned and we have broken the law, when you have faith in the gospel, you are now considered a righteous person, and God is going to treat you as if you're a righteous person. So that means when you die and stand before the judgment seat, no condemnation awaits those who are in Christ Jesus. You are going to stand before God, and he's going to say, I see no sin in you. There's no sin here for me to judge. You did technically sin. But you are counted as righteous. You are considered righteous. You are reckoned as righteous. And so that leads us to understanding better what righteousness is. Again, it's a status. We saw this earlier in the book of Galatians when they considered the Gentiles sinners, the Jews righteous. And Paul says, no, everyone is a sinner, those by faith righteous. This is where we earn our righteousness. Well, not earn, this is where we receive our righteousness. And so again, in understanding righteousness, I need to emphasize this point just one more time. This is an objective righteousness, not a subjective righteousness. Again, Abraham was not changed. Now, we believe he eventually was, but that's a different doctrine, which is elaborated in a different book. We are changed in the gospel. The Spirit changes us. Good works follow. All that is true, but as it pertains, remember, our microscope, we're just looking at justification right now. As it pertains to justification, there's no change to you. You are merely considered righteous before God. Abraham received a righteous status. A couple uh, his, one historic analogy for this, and then one contemporary analogy. so the historic one comes from the great Martin Luther during the Protestant Reformation and, and uh, justification by faith alone and impute, impute, the imputation of righteousness. This is, in my opinion, where Luther truly shined. This was, uh, he was very strong on this issue and he was very helpful to the Reformation in arguing with the Roman Catholics because they deny imputed righteousness. They do not believe it's a thing that is not part of the Roman Catholic system. And so Luther really went to town to push and promote and teach the understanding of imputed righteousness by faith and he used an analogy that is, might be funny to us but it was, it was very helpful to them and it's called Luther's famous Dunghill Analogy. Uh, Luther often taught in very agricultural parts of Germany and during his travels you would walk by fields and farmers remember they didn't have the great technology that we have today so they had to do things the hard way and so as they would prepare to uh, use the manure on their field they would stack up manure in these huge piles that they could eventually go back through and, and, and use to fertilize their fields so during certain seasons of life you would pass by these farms and it wasn't a very pleasant time because you'd see these gross dung hills manure hills all over the place so the look was gross and the stench was gross right so you saw these very objectively disgusting things but luther noticed something every now and then it would snow and what would happen to these dung hills once it snowed suddenly there was no more stench and it was actually quite beautiful these glistening hills So Luther said, this is a perfect analogy of the imputed righteousness of Christ. That you, in the analogy, hate to break it to you, what are you in the analogy? You're the dunghill. There is nothing lovely about you. You are a fallen son of Adam. You are a fallen daughter of Eve. You are a sinner before a holy God. You have a spiritual stench. But by faith, the righteousness of Christ falls upon you like the snow. The righteousness of Christ blankets you, covers you. God imputes it to you. He gives you that righteous status and it covers your stench. So now you are lovely to God. You have been covered in the white snow of Christ's righteousness. We have a less poetic but really helpful analogy. Uh, Many of the translations in your Bibles will use the word credit, and I think that we definitely understand that concept because we live in a day and age of credit cards and credit fake, well, not fake, but invisible money. Well, if you're a gold standard person, it's fake, but that's a different lecture. (laughs) So what is this concept of crediting? Well, let's imagine that you've got, some of us maybe don't have to imagine this, but you've got no money in the bank account, and you are deep in debt. If you go and you look at your uh, credit cards online, you not only have no money, but you owe a lot of people a lot of money. You're in the red. You are negative. Someone can credit righteousness, not righteousness. Someone can credit money. You can ask, "I need your help, please." And they can transfer, they can wire, they can credit you money, and now suddenly you're a rich person and you have no debt. Now, you didn't earn it. It's not money you self-generated. It was credited to you. It was imputed to you. It was given to you by grace. That is the concept of imputed righteousness. We stand before God, not just with nothing. We stand in debt. And we say, "I, I can't pay this. And God says, don't worry. Because of what my son, the life he lived and the death that he died, he has procured something and I will credit it to your account. I will take his righteousness, and I'll give it to you. I'll take his death, and I'll give it to you. Your debt is paid. That's imputed righteousness. And the way you receive the death of Christ, the way you receive the righteousness of Christ, the way you receive that is by nothing but faith. You believe. And God credits you with righteousness. It is a beautiful doctrine. And and it's elaborated more further. This is why, by the way, Martin Luther, I I love his phrase the best. It's better than imputed. He referred to this as an alien righteousness. That's not the Roswell kind of alien. That is, we are righteous. If you're in Christ, you are righteous. You're a righteous person. You're a holy person. But it's not because you've lived a righteous life. It's because an alien righteousness has invaded A righteousness from somewhere else has entered your atmosphere. It's an alien righteousness, a foreign righteousness that God gives to you through faith by grace. Uh, Turn to Romans chapter 4. This is the famous, typically when someone's going to talk about imputation, they won't go to Galatians 3, although that's obviously there. They will go to Romans chapter 4, because Paul is not only going to elaborate on this more, but he's going to finish our sermon for us by reminding us of why this doctrine is so great. This is why we should rejoice in this doctrine. Romans chapter 4 I wish we had time to read all of Romans chapter 3, that's really important context 2-4, but I think we'll still get the point. Romans chapter 4 verse 1, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So here's why justification by faith alone, the imputed righteousness, which happens in justification, here's why, one reason why this doctrine is so glorious, is it cuts out all ground of boasting. Paul's point is this, we all agree that Abraham was a righteous man, we all agree that God considered him righteous, but what was the basis of that consideration? Why did God consider him righteous? Is it because he earned it? Paul says, well, if he did, then he gets to go to heaven bragging. Abraham gets to walk to heaven with, with his chest up. Like, that's right, I earned my spot here. Abraham gets to go before God and say, you're welcome for being so great. Now let me in to what I rightly deserved. And Paul says, no one will do that before God. No one has anything to brag about before God. I promise you, I don't mean to be harsh, but God is not that impressed by you. He's simply not that impressed. A holy God is not that impressed with us. This is why it's so important for us to see that if you deny justification by faith alone, if you think justification is even in part by your works, then Paul's logic is you are now arrogant you're now boastful because you don't just get to the throne of God saying the only reason I'm here is by grace. That's not true because God gave grace to everyone and some people still aren't here. So there's some difference between you and them, something you get to brag about. And this is an important question. Have you, have you ever asked this question? Why are you saved and your neighbors not? Why are you saved and uh, your parents are not? Your friends are not? Are you better than them? That must be why, right? You're just so much better than them. You're just so much better than them. So God just had to save you. You're such a good person. You must be just way smarter than them. Right? Christians, we're just way smarter than all those unbelievers. No. Do we have anything to boast about in our salvation? Do we have anything to brag about? Paul's answer is, not if you believe in justification by faith alone. I have nothing to brag about. I'm not better than you. I've just received mercy. I've accepted the mercy of God. But he continues, it gets even better. Verse 3, for what does the scripture say? And then he quotes from the same exact text, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This is a related but slightly separate point. Here's another reason why imputed righteousness is so glorious, why justification by faith is so glorious. If you deny that, then you ultimately believe that God is in your debt. Not only will you go to heaven proud, but you will go to heaven with your hand out saying, Hey God, pay up. I lived a righteous life. I earned this, so pay it, or I'll see you in court. Right? You realize, folks, your paycheck is not a gift. When you're an employer, it would be condescending, arrogant, and sinful for your employer to hand you your paycheck and say, now, by the way, this is just because I am so gracious. I am so merciful and kind and steadfast in my love that I am going to give you a gift. You're welcome. How would you respond? This is not a present. I earned this. You owe this to me. If you don't give it to me, I'm gonna sue you. Justification by works allows us to do that with God. Pay up God, where's my payment? That's what Paul says, if you're justified by works, then salvation is not a gift, it's what is due. But we will never put God in our debt. God will never be in your debt. We want to believe in a salvation that is not something I earned, that God is now indebted to me. It's purely a gift. It's grace. It is something I didn't deserve. But to him who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So we want to believe a gospel that allows me to go to heaven and say, I am not better than unbelievers, and I did not earn this. We want to go to heaven saying, I'm here by grace, and this is a gift. And justification by faith allows us to do that. And so what Paul does now, he's been appealing to Abraham, he's going to go after another one of the patriarchs. He's going to bring David into his argument. Verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, And then he quotes from David's Psalms, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Here's the third reason why justification is so great. Because we not only have positive imputation, where righteousness is given to us, but we now have negative imputation, where our own sins are not given to us. What does he say at the very end of verse 8? Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. When you sin in Christ, it's not counted to you. You get Christ's righteousness and you don't get your own sin. It's a positive imputation and a negative. Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose deeds are covered, blesses the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is the glorious gospel of the Christian faith. And this is so important because as I've said in the last couple weeks, people don't know this about us. You ask any one of your unbelieving neighbors, what's the Christian message? What's the ultimate aim of Christianity? And I guarantee most of them will say something like, believe in God, be a good person, and good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. Paul's point is, yeah, that's kind of true, but there's a problem with that. We're all bad. So now we need another gospel that deals with the fact that there is none good, none who is righteous, no, not even one. What do we do now? I agree good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell, but the problem is there's only been one good person. His name is Jesus. So what do we do in a world where there are no good people? And that's where the Christian gospel actually comes in. The Christian gospel is not good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. That's just a general fact of creation. The gospel is how we are saved from that reality. And it's that by faith in the finished work of Christ, God will forgive your sins and give you the righteousness you need. It's a gift and it's unmerited. And it's a glorious gospel. And by the way, it's not just for Abraham and David. Look at verse 22 of Romans chapter 4. That is why, speaking of Abraham, his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone. But for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You can be the blessed man of Romans chapter 4. You can be the blessed woman of Romans chapter 4. You can have your sins forgiven. You can have your sins not imputed to you. And you can have the righteousness of Christ by faith. And Paul says, these words were written for you. You simply need to believe in God and believe in his gospel that Jesus died for sins and rose from the dead. And when you believe that, your faith is counted as righteousness. This is a gospel not just for Abraham, not just for David, but for us as well. That by faith and by faith alone, you are made right with a holy God. Because of Jesus' death to forgive your sins and cancel your sins, God the Father can credit the righteousness of Christ that he secured to you through your faith. That is an important part of our gospel. I want us to conclude with this verse. Let's conclude with this. Turn to the book of Philippians. If you're in Romans, just turn over a couple more books in the New Testament. Romans, first and second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, get everyone popcorn. Sorry, Philippians chapter three. We'll conclude with this and then we'll pray. Philippians chapter three. Let us begin in verse eight. Verses 1 through 7, Paul has unfortunately had to do some bragging he didn't want to do because the Jews were going after him again. So Paul had to sort of remind everyone of his long list of Jewish credentials. But then reflecting on his great resume, on his, from a worldly perspective, his very impressive resume, Paul breaks into this amazing teaching in verse 8. Right, let's begin in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, here's the key, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The ultimate hope and goal of the Christian life is to be righteous, but not a righteousness that is found on your own through the law, but a righteousness that comes from God, an alien righteousness imputed to you on the basis of faith.